Hello friends and welcome to another episode of the Board Game Shenanigans Podcast where we review the games we've been playing and discuss board game related topics. My name is Bob. And I'm Natasha. In today's episode we are going to be discussing the West Kingdom series and then our discussion topic is going to be artwork in games. So let's go ahead and get into it. Natasha, why don't you tell them how to play Architects? Alright, this week I played Architects of the West Kingdom. It's a worker placement game designed by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald. It's published by Garfield Games. In this game, players are architects competing to impress their king by constructing the cathedral and various landmarks to earn victory points. They do this by sending out one of their 20 workers to collect raw materials, hire apprentices, capture groups of workers, or do less virtuous activities like stealing from the tax stand or visiting the black market. So there are three things that are really unique about this worker placement game. One is the worker investment. You only place one meeple on the board each turn, but if you already have a meeple there, you get to collect an additional resource from that spot or do that action multiple times, depending on how many meeples are already there. The second thing that is unique is the ability to capture workers on the board. If you send a worker to the town center, he can recruit all the workers from any spot on the board, except for the black market. Captured workers are kept on your player board, and on a later turn, you can throw them all in prison to earn one coin per meeple. It's really not bad for that to happen to your workers because you simply go to the guardhouse and release them at no cost. It's how you get your workers back, really. Players are incentivized to capture other players' meeples because it's an easy way to earn a lot of money. The third thing is the virtue track. Throughout the game, you can gain and lose virtue. If you end the game with high virtue, it will earn you points, and if you're on the low end, you'll lose points. However, there are benefits to not having virtue throughout the game. You can skimp on paying your taxes, so there's a lot of strategy in spending the beginning part of the game at the bottom of the virtue track, and then as the game is coming to an end, trying to shoot back up for those victory points. What makes this game different than most worker placement games is the timing of your actions. Most worker placements, you kind of have a plan for your next few turns. I'm going to go here, then here, then here. This game, you may have a plan, but you still have three workers on stone, and even though you don't need any stone right now, if you go there now, you can snag four stone, and that's really hard to get. So if you see someone else doing the same thing with gold, you decide it's a good time to go capture those workers. Or maybe you go to the black market just to trigger a black market reset because you don't have anyone in prison, and you get a bonus when that happens. Yeah, this game very much approaches worker placement in a very unique way mm-hmm. where you have this gigantic pool of workers that you can just do with as you please. You know, mm-hmm. you're constantly only putting one down, but it's completely different than most worker placement games because most worker placement games, you start with a couple over the course of the game, you're going to end up acquiring more, but mm-hmm. this game, you get them all at once and you can just go. And the the buildup that you have, okay, I'm going to put this person on stone. I'm going to get one stone. If I go back there, I'll get two. If I go back there, I get three. If I Until go back- someone catches on to what you're doing and swipes you out of there. It's a real unique push and pull for a player because as I'm watching you collect stuff, how long do I let you do that? Mm-hmm. That's what I like about this game. Mm-hmm. But you got your own plans. Like, do you want to spend, you might not plan on doing that right now because you've got other plans, but you see me- going after all that stone, you're like, all right, change plan. Yeah, I can't let Natasha have all that stone or specifically gold because Mm -hmm. in one action space is the mines and you can get brick and you can get gold. But you need at least two people on there to get one gold. So if you have four people, you can get two gold. Well, when you see somebody get three people on there, you're like, now's a good time to uh, run them up. You know they've been working at getting that third gold. Like, man, or do two I? Gold. Yeah, do I just like, do I do my own thing? Do I let somebody else do it? Do do I do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you do it. You do it. Oh man! All right, all right, all right, all right. But you're so incentivized to pick those workers up because you can get a ton of money. You pick a couple workers up now, a couple workers up the next turn. You drop them off at the jail. Now all of a sudden you're getting 10, 12 coins. It's an interesting mechanic with that jail system because, yes, you scoop up these, you round them up, and you put them on your own personal player board. All the other players have an opportunity to take them from you, but the costs, right? Mm-hmm. I think five coins or you can take like a debt card. Yeah. So they have the ability to pull them from you, but you kind of don't want to do that. You kind of just want to wait until they get dropped off. Yes, that person's going to accumulate a bunch of money because you get one gold for every worker you drop off that isn't your own. You almost kind of just want to wait mm-hmm. until they do that because you don't want to pay five. Five coins is a lot Yeah, to try to round up your people from other people's player boards. When you know they'll be free in a, a minute as soon as they drop them off. But if you hoard them too long, then people will start taking them. Then you won't get the coins for them. 
Yeah, it has a very interesting timing element with all the other players. When am I going to take those players? When am I going to take my own turns? Yep. That kind of thing, yeah. That and along with the black market. So there's a couple sections on the board that you can't round up people. And one of them is with a black market. But the black market, if it gets filled up, it will reset. And then depending on how many people are in prison, if you have the most, you'll get a debt. And so the timing of when you trigger that black market reset is really a lot of strategy in that as well. Yes. Yep. Agreed. Another thing I liked about this game is how easy it was to teach. Yes. It's pretty straightforward. On your turn, you get one worker, you put them out on the board, and you get to do this at whatever activity you go to. That's standard worker placement. You know, it's not, there's no nothing complicated about that part of it. I think it's a next step kind of game to to introduce people to worker placement because he, Shem Phillips has this ability to take these worker placement games and just tweak them ever so slightly, give them a u- new, unique kind of flavor to them. Mm-hmm. Specifically like this one, and I keep going back to having this gigantic pool of workers right when you start the game. There's something so satisfying about just sitting there with all these workers. I can just start sending them out and doing whatever I want to do. And then all of a sudden you look down, you have like a couple, but you have eight in prison. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to go snag those real quick. Yeah. You got to be careful. You don't want to get down to no workers because then you spend your whole turn just re- grabbing one of your workers and bring it back into your player area. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone do that, though. I have. The first time I played, I wasn't very careful, but I also built a lot of buildings and not other players did not build as many buildings and that's what triggers the end of the game so i was building a ton of buildings every time you build a building you leave one of your workers on the board that you cannot ever get back and so by the end of it i only had a few workers to begin with and they were all sparsely out nobody was like picking them up again you know Mm -hmm. but so the goal of this game is to build buildings right you're the architects and then work on the cathedral there's a shared part of building the cathedral together you'll get victory points based on how, um, how much you contribute to the cathedral, and then also the victory points for the buildings you build throughout. When it comes to worker placement games, specifically this one, I've been thinking a lot about why I like this game. Okay. And we have a player in our gaming group that talked about the specifically the rounding people up and sending them to jail and how he felt it was kind of tacked on. Mm-hmm. And just he, he didn't like that portion of things. And when I first played it, I didn't really care for it. As I've played it more, I've appreciated it because what it does is it puts the timing into the player's hands. Mm -hmm. So now it's no longer, okay, the round ends, scoop up all your workers. Well, no, you're in charge of when the workers get scooped up. Yeah. So he's taking that power and giving it to the players and the players have the ability to do it as they please. You know, they're the ones that are determining, okay, when do I round people up? When do I stop saying, all right, I can't let Natasha get that two gold. So I need to make sure I scoop up her workers. I'm going to need some money. So maybe I just go scoop up workers anyway, because I'm going to need some funds at some point. Yeah, you might just be doing it for your own advantage. And I really like the fact that it empowers the players to be able to do that. It's up to us to determine when that happens. Mm -hmm. It's not a game mechanic, which I really like. I also really like the virtue track. It's very thematic in the game. If you lose virtue, now all of a sudden you're not paying your taxes because you're so unvirtuous. If you do get too low, then you also can't contribute to the cathedral because nobody wants you to work on the cathedral. You scumbag. No, don't (laughs) don't come over to this cathedral. But you want to be down there at the bottom so you don't have to pay taxes. So there's this this really fun dynamic of, of taking advantage of being a scoundrel and then towards the end, like pushing yourself way up to get those victory points. Which can be a lot harder than you might think. It could be. If you, you have to make an uh, intention to do that. Yes. Agreed. Yep. I think that's a lot of fun. I, I have a lot of fun with this game. I like it a lot. Yep. I think we should save our ranking until the, at the very end when we kind of talk about all three games together. What do you think? Sounds good. All right. Next up, I want to talk about Paladins of the West Kingdom. So this is also another worker placement game. It's designed by the same Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald published by Garfield Games. In this game, players must gather workers from the city to defend against enemies, build fortifications, and spread faith throughout the land to earn the most victory points to win the game. They do this by making good use of their chosen paladin and selected workers each round to build outposts and fortifications and commission monks and confront outsiders. Throughout the game, players will slowly increase their faith, strength, and influence. Not only will they receive endgame points for them, but they will also determine the significance of their actions. There are two things that are unique about this worker placement game. In typical worker placement games, players will go around the board placing their workers in action spots and doing that action until they run out of workers. What makes this game different is that all the action spots are on your personal player board until the King's Favor cards come out. Then there are one to five action spots that are available. 
but limited only to one player. What also makes this unique is that there are six types of workers that are available to use. And at the start of each round, your paladin gives you two workers that align with their special ability and you draft the other four by selecting a card with four meeples on it. The combination of those six workers are what you get for that round. Then players go around taking turns going to each one of the actions on their board. I think what makes this game unique is the different types of workers. So you get six different types of workers. They're all going to be each a different color and they're mm-hmm. going to correspond with specific spots on your board. Yeah. So in some of the actions, it might take three workers and you might need a blue worker and then it doesn't matter. It can be any color and then a you know red worker. It really changes that worker placement aspect again where now it's you get a confined amount of workers you know, you get so many each round, guaranteed six, mm-hmm. but they're going to be a bunch of different colors. And you're now looking for the colors that you need to take the actions that you want to take. Which you can't always get. So sometimes you have to just make do with the colors that you get. And what's nice is you can actually change the color of them. Because you can conspire and make your worker a criminal. And criminals can be, are essentially wilds. They can go to any spot on the board. But you end up getting... You end up getting these corruption cards, and at some point, though, you're going to have to... You can acquire debts if you have too many corruption cards. There's going to be a inquisition that happens, and whoever has the most of those cards uh, gets a debt, and then they take half of their cards and discard them, and then you just keep going until that inquisition happens again. So you do have the ability to convert workers into something that you might actually need. Mm -hmm. And like the rest of his games, debts aren't always bad, which we didn't talk about in Architects, but... Uh, you get a debt and it's minus two or three points. And then um, in this game, it's minus three points. But if you flip that debt, if you pay it off, then you get a uh, a victory point. The debts aren't necessarily as bad as you might think. You can actually do a whole strategy where you're just trying to acquire debts and flip them. Yeah. Because you have plenty of opportunities to flip them throughout the game, depending yeah. on what kind of action spaces you take. Yeah, we didn't talk about this in Architects, but you, if you don't flip the debt, it's minus two points. But if you do, it increases your virtue. So that's another way to go up that virtue track. Yep. In this one, it's uh, minus three points. But if you flip it, you get a point at the end of the game. Shim Phillips has taken worker placement and then did this thing again where he twists it slightly on its head. Mm-hmm. So you get these specific amount of workers round to round. It's always going to be six. Now you can uncover some and then you can acquire more workers by taking actions, but you will always start by acquiring six workers. But then he has this thing where he color codes them and they're specific to specific actions. So sometimes you end up with a green one that you don't really need, but he does have spots where it could be any color. So there's just enough restriction where you have to think about the type of colors you're taking, but there's enough open space that it's not crucial that you get every single color that you need. Yeah, and if you're clever enough, you can then collect workers of colors that you need and then pull off what you really want done, which is really satisfying. We've talked about puzzly games, and this is one of those games that's such a nice puzzle in front of you where you're manipulating stuff like, okay, I need to do this garrison action. Hopefully this gives me this thing, and then if it gives me this thing, I'm going to have some provisions so then I can send these monks out. And like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it just comes together in such a cool unique way with those different colors you can develop which means you can take a building and place it on one of those worker spots so now that worker spot only requires two workers instead of three i like that i like how you can go to anywhere you want you don't have to worry about other players blocking you however you do want to make sure you get there first because if you're trying to do the attack action and somebody does it before you they might attack the same person you had meant to attack and then now you can't do that now or you'd have to have a higher strength in order to attack the higher, the next highest person on the board. The way he handles the player interaction in this specific game compared to, let's say, Architects is vying for those townsfolk and outsider cards in the central area. There's those action spots that become available later on in the game. Mm-hmm. And then there's also spots where you take your... Monks and your garrisons. Yeah, and you can place them out on the board and you can get little bonuses, like you'll get a cup of gold or you'll get another worker, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the player interaction is not doesn't have much to do with your actual action spaces. Mm-hmm. It is how you're manipulating the central two boards, which I really like. Yeah. It's enough where you feel like you do feel this tension that I, I need to do this action first. So I have access to this outsider before Natasha does. Mm-hmm. But I'm not restricted. Like I will be able to take that action if I want and if I have the right colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that about this game. Each action spot on your right side of the board 
It all requires you to have a certain amount of faith, strength, or influence, but then it also increases either your faith, strength, or influence, one of the opposite ones that you're using to do that action. You use one to acquire the other, and it's this constant like shifting between all them. Like, I need to make sure I have this in order so I can take this action, which will increase this, which will give me this action later on. It's one of those games where you want to do everything, but you can't. You don't have enough time to do everything, but you can't. Just ignore certain parts of the game because if you ignore your faith, then you can't do any of the um, actions that require faith. And I think what I like up to in the first three rounds, they reveal objective cards that you can score points for. Yeah, the king's favor. Yep. I really like that because it kind of, it pushes you slightly. It says, mm-hmm. all right, you know what? You don't have to focus on garrisons this game because it's not going to score. You can if you want to because you can still acquire points that way, mm-hmm. but you don't have to. Like yep. we're kind of saying like, listen, in this game, you don't have to focus on it if you don't want to. It nudges you slightly, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah. It really changes the game a lot. I had the last time we played, I had gotten a card that gave me victory points for each of the corruption cards. But then we also had an objective to um, absolve, which if you go to absolve, you get rid of your corruption cards. So I had a bunch of corruption cards, but then I absolved them all and got rid of them and didn't score any points off the whole thing. That really changed my strategy going forward You know, each game. There's these little combos that you can pull off with the different work, the townsfolk and the outsiders and just the type of positions that you have on the board. You can pull off these really cool combos. Mm -hmm. And I like how the attacking workings. Attacking just means that you um, attack one of the the outsiders that are available. As long as you have enough strength, you can take any of them that that, that require that strength or less. And then you just get a special ability. So there's no actual attacking or combat at all in this game. Very Euro-y. I also love the Paladins, which is what it's named for. So every player gets a set of Paladin cards. Each Paladin gives you two specific workers, and it gives you strength in one or two of the faith, strength, or influence tracks. Mm -hmm. And then it also gives you a special power at the bottom. And I thought, when I first started playing the game, I thought the special power was what made it you'd want to focus on. But sometimes I end up choosing the Paladin based on the extra strength it gives me along that strength track. You know, if I know I want to be attacking this run i want to go for a paladin that has a high strength if i want to maybe absolve my sins i want to go to the paladin with the most influence so i can earn faith that turn what's cool about it too is you're managing a set of three cards every round so you have this deck you shuffle it you draw three yep you pick one that's the one you're playing you take one you put it on the bottom of your deck and you take the other one set it on top yeah yeah i like that because i'm like whoa i don't really want to use this special ability now because this one will uh, let me recruit people with no money. Well, right now it doesn't cost me any money, but later on it's going to get higher and higher. Yep. So you kind of set that card down for later. Maybe you draw it again, you set it down for later again. I love that. There was one game where in the very first round I drew a card and it was whenever you do this specific action, you don't have to you don't have to pay provisions for it. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, right now it's only costing me one provision, but when I get to the end, it's going to cost me three every single time. Mm-hmm. So I just kept putting that card on top, putting that card on top, putting that card on top until I finally got to the point I was like, all right, this is the round I'm playing it. And I played it and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. And like not having to spend that many provisions, you know, six provisions can be a lot in this game. Yep. Because there's a way you can wipe your workers off too and then go to that spot again. And you definitely need to take advantage of that to go to these spots over and over again. Yep. I love how the Paladins play out in this game. And it's a really small decision point. But you need to make sure that you're using your paladins well. Yes. You got to take advantage of their special abilities. Mm -hmm. You actually have to take advantage of three things. Their special abilities, what banners they give you access to, or what strengths they give you, and then what type of workers. So you're constantly looking at it and saying, all right, what am I trying to accomplish this round? You have to think far enough ahead, Mm -hmm. but it's not like chess where you have to think 17 moves ahead yeah yeah you know you have just the right amount yeah just good enough you know and if you feel like you're not gonna have enough workers you know don't worry you'll end up being able to get another worker you just gotta be clever enough to figure out how to how to time that really well yes yeah there's a lot of fun puzzly parts of this game that i just love it yeah it's it's very puzzly and it comes together in a very solid way Yep. yep all right that's paladins of the west kingdom bob why don't you tell us about the third one all right, so Viscounts of the West Kingdom. This is going to be a Rondell hand management deck building game. Mm-hmm. Also designed by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald, also published by Garfield Games. In this game, players are going to take on the role of Viscounts, vying for the people's favor as the king's reign begins to decline. They do this by traveling around a board, trading goods, constructing buildings, transcribing manuscripts, 
or placing workers in a castle. The game is played over an undetermined amount of rounds. The game end trigger is when one of two stacks of cards are depleted. They're going to be debts and they're going to be deeds. On a player's turn, they are going to first advance a set of cards on their player board. They remove the last one from the row and place a new one in that first space. These cards have several functions. They could be an instant ability that is triggered when played, or it's a delayed effect that occurs when the card is removed from the board. These cards also have icons on them that correspond to the actions you can take and a coin value that actually determines how far you're going to move your Viscount, which is actually the next phase of a player's turn, moving your Viscount. You move based on the gold value on the card that you just played. And where you land determines the action you can take. There's an inside of the board and the outside. The outside lets players do take the trade action and build buildings off of their personal player boards. The inside of the board lets you transcribe manuscripts and place workers in the castle. Once you have moved to a spot, you can take the action, which is fueled by the icons of the cards that you have on your player board and any resources you may have acquired. Once have, players have completed their action, then they can buy a card from the face-up pile next to where their Viscount is. They next resolve any collisions if it has occurred, which I'll get to in a second. Then they drop to their hand size and the next player goes in turn order. So for this collision, players are going to be moving two markers on the board. One is considered corruption and the other is virtue. And when these two discs meet, you resolve them. Typically, you will receive both like gold and uh, debt and deed cards. But if you are more corrupt, you're going to gain more debt. If you're more virtuous, you're going to gain more deeds. All the other players are also going to have something happen just depending on if they have any skull symbols in their personal player board. What makes this game unique is the blend of mechanics and the use of resources. So there are the four actions you can take and each resource helps fuel that action. The way they work is there's a certain requirement you need to do the action. So for example, if you want to trade, the, there's going to be a conversion. So for every two money bags, you can gain one inkwell. But you can use money to increase the amount of bags you have. Same thing for the other actions. Stone helps you meet building requirements, inkwells for manuscripts, and gold to progress in the castle. And there's a mechanic where you can dismiss a card by your Viscount to temporarily gain any icon on that person. I think of all the games, this one is probably going to be the most difficult teach. Oh, absolutely. This is a little bit tricky. To, it's, I don't know if it's just because it's so different or if it's a lot of iconography. It is definitely trickier to learn. So my overview was very brief compared to the complexity of what happens within the game. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the hand management where you're going to have a deck of cards. So I described it as a deck builder and I didn't really mention that in my review, but or my overview, but you have a deck of cards and you have three cards in your hand. You're going to take one, you're going to place it down in the row and you're going to push another set of the set of cards over. Yeah. You've got spots for three cards. Yep. So as soon as you play your fourth card, you kick off the third one yep. and it triggers mo most of the cards, not all trigger some kind of benefit for getting it kicked off the board. Yes. And then you place a new card and you could get an instant benefit or you could end up having this delayed benefit that you're going to end up with later on. The game has a, a ton of mechanics, actually, a lot more than the other couple games. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's a smidge fiddly. It's a lot fiddly. The progression of the turn, for the most part, seems actually pretty straightforward, right? So you play a card. Maybe something happens when you play a card. Then you move your Viscount. Okay, so you move your Viscount around the board. And then you take one of four actions, mm -hmm. right? The collision thing is kind of cool. And then you, you can buy a card and then you drop to your hand size. So mechanically, it seems pretty simple. But there's a lot of like little moving pieces in each bit. Mm -hmm. For example, the resources. Typically in a game like this, your resources would be used to build something. So you're, okay, I'm going to build this section of castle. It needs two gold and four wood or whatever. Yeah. In this game, you don't get that. This game, the resources, like I said, fuel the actions that you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to transcribe a manuscript, it might have a requirement of, let's say, five. Mm-hmm. Well, looking at the symbols on your player board, you might only have three, but if you have two inkwells, you can bump it up to that requirement. Yeah, they kind of fill in for those those icons that you're missing. Yes. Each of your cards will have icons on it that will help you do each of those actions, but not enough. You're not going to have enough actions, so you need those resources. Then you go to spots that you can trade in. You can use those icons to get more resources. Yes. It's different, and in a way I haven't seen before. What's interesting about this particular game compared to the other ones is the other ones are, I would say, worker placement games. Mm -hmm. This, I would say, in the trilogy is not the worker placement game. Not at all. You have workers and you're placing them in the castle. So one of the actions you can do is you can place workers inside a castle. And 
what you're doing is you're you can place a certain number and then if you have let's say three or more you can you kick two people off to the side and then you progress into the castle there's three tiers i love that mechanic it's so fun it's okay yes it is fun but trying to teach somebody how to do it it's tricky yeah i've had to teach this game a couple times to new players and the two things that are hardest for me to teach is the castle and the corruption stuff the the collision Mm -hmm. okay because again you get three workers in there cool if there's three exactly the same you move to different sides of the castle and then you can move into an inner tier and there's three tiers Mm -hmm. and as soon as that inner tier that second tier has three workers you can move into the final tier that kind of thing and you get a benefit for moving your workers up up the tiers right and you score points at the end of the game for how however many you got in there yeah you can score a ton of, and that's one thing about this game is there's a ton of ways to score points mm-hmm. side tangent with scoring i recently taught this game and one of the players asked me if there was any like new player traps mm-hmm. and i didn't think there were now i think there is i think players are going to want to do everything and they can't you yes. have to pick something Pick something that you can be really good at and efficient at and do that thing. Yep. You can dabble in some of the other stuff, but like if you're not focusing on one thing specifically, you're just not going to score as much points as you could. Yeah. Like my first game, I got a lot of new um, cards to put in my hand and the game ended ended up ending a lot quicker than I thought. So I didn't even get to play all those cards. I would have been better off spending the money getting resources to be able to do better actions. Yeah, and the this game is very similar to Architects where the game end is based on an undetermined amount of time. So you're going to be collecting both debt and deed cards. Mm-hmm. So this is different than the other two games where debts you're getting, you're going to get, again, negative victory points. But then when you flip it, you get a resource. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're getting that benefit. And then deeds, every deed is worth one point. If you can flip it, though, they're worth three. Yeah. So they can be worth a lot more points. So each deck is going to have a specific number of cards on top of a a scoring card where it's based on player count. And then when you get through that deck and hit that scoring card, then that triggers the end of the game. You finish out the round, you play one more round, and it's done. Mm -hmm. What's cool is those scoring cards are for having the most of either debt or deed. So if you run the debt deck all the way down, then whoever's flipped the most amount of deeds will score points. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you run the D deck all the way down, then whoever's flipped the most amount of debts. So it's this nice like seesaw kind of push and pull that you're going to have. Okay, I see the D deck is getting really low. I better get more debt cards. I'm going to get more debt cards and flip them so I can score points. And it's a decent amount of points you can score, Mm -hmm. you know. All right, to go back to the castle and this collision thing, okay. Inevitably, when I'm teaching the castle thing, I just say, all right, give me a bunch of meeples from like all the other players. You almost have to set up scenarios to explain to people what happens when certain things happen. So when you get three, you push. Each section of the castle is kind of tied into a section on the board. So you push two people over to to either side and then one person up. But then if you push somebody into a section where you have, now you have three workers all of a sudden, you do the same thing. So you can have all these triggered events, which allow you to like continuously move your workers around this castle. Which makes it a lot of fun. Unless somebody else kicks you off of there. That's no fun. That's the only part I don't like about it. Which you can do. And it's if there's more than three workers in any section, you boot them. Mm-hmm. So there's only ever going to be three workers in any of the specific castle sections. Right? Not the tiers, but the sections. Whoever you boot, you can actually get you can get something. So if you get booted off the first tier, I think you get a couple gold. If you get booted off the second tier, you're gonna get a resource and and I think you get a virtue bump, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So you get something and you can't get kicked out of the top tier once you get up there. It can be tough to get to that final tier too. Mm-hmm. And then the collision, which so that's an action that you take, but it only occurs when these two discs hit each other. So you're constantly manipulating your virtue and your corruption. And then as soon as they hit, they stay locked together until you take care of that action. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't know how much I particularly like that aspect of things. I, I like it in that, so if you're really virtuous and you move your virtue tracker all the way over to the corruption one, you get a bunch of deeds. Yes. If you're really corrupt and you move it all the way over to the virtue side, you get a bunch of debts. And money. But if you're a little, yeah, and money. But if you're a little bit of both, you end up in the middle and you don't get very much of anything. So the strategy there is to either be completely virtuous or completely corrupt. I think so. Yeah, you're almost, you're trying to like cap out on one side or the other. So I appreciate that interesting part of it that you always want to try to focus on getting one all the way to the other end. 
Well, and it progresses the game. That's the other thing for it is, and that I think that's one of the biggest things is it's a game progression point. When they collide and you take that action, well, now you're drawing three deed cards progresses the game pretty quick. Granted, I mean, you're not colliding them that often in a game. You know, you're probably only having a handful of collisions throughout the course of the game anyway. Yeah, I think I only had one the one time. It definitely progresses the game forward, which is good, but it can be it can be a little tough to teach, I think. I think overall the whole game can be tough to teach. And while you're learning each turn feels really long as you're trying to figure out, okay, first I do this, then I do this, then I do this. It's kind of got a lot of little steps in there and they're quick and it, it yeah. definitely gets faster, but that does definitely feels long and a little harder to grasp. And definitely like the long-term strategy is definitely harder to pick up when yes. you're first learning the game. You really, this is um, a game you really need to play a couple times and then you can work on developing a strategy. Yeah. Just to almost kind of like, it takes almost a little too long to wrap your head around all the mechanics as you're learning. So actually, let's, you know what, let's pivot right now and let's just, let's talk about the West Kingdom trilogy as itself. So Mm -hmm. that was Viscounts. Let's talk about West Kingdom series altogether. And let's talk about teaching. Okay. Okay. Architects clearly is the easiest teach. Yes. Like without a doubt. It's easy to teach. It's easy to wrap your head around and it's easy to keep track of all the rules. Yes. Because there's not much. It's for the most part, straightforward worker placement with enough twist to make it interesting, yes, but not complicated. Correct. Paladins is, for the most part, pretty easy. I would say the jump between architects and paladins, as far as teaching, isn't. Yeah, I think it's easy to bad. teach. Yeah, it's easy to teach, but it's hard to play correctly because you forget that you have to be at a certain point on all these tracks. The the strength, influence, and faith track. You cannot do these certain actions without being at a certain level on that track, and you forget that, and so. It's not hard to play, but it's hard to play correctly. Like you go to do an action and then you're like, oh, I can't because I'm not up high enough on the track or, oh, I can't because I need money to do that. So you kind of forget, like there's just so many fiddly rules, so many rules throughout the game that aren't really clear that it's really hard to keep track of it all. And you're constantly feeling like you're making mistakes yeah, or breaking the rules. Well, it's one of those things that as you increase on those three different tracks, as you're bumping up all three of those, there was a moment this last game we played where I was sitting there looking at us like, man, I wonder why I'm not that far up. I had the ability to count just because of the cards I had and the things I had unlocked. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be two spaces higher than I actually am. Yeah, you have to remember that. Yeah. So you go to this action, you have to remember where you're at on this track. And then you have to pay these resources and then you have to move this piece and then you get this other piece and then you got to remember to move your track back up. It's just a lot. It doesn't feel fiddly, but it really kind of is. Yeah, it's almost like there's payments for stuff like you're paying. Oh, you're always paying gold for something or you're paying like provisions for something. And I don't know how many times I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't think I paid provisions for that. Yeah. You know, it's easy to forget. I love this game. I love Paladins. And I think the teach is easy, but to really fully grasp it and to like play a whole game without accidentally cheating, it's probably going to take you a couple games. I love how you said accidentally cheating. <laughs> yeah. There's no accident when you cheat, Natasha. It's an accident. I realized I had to do that thing to do that other thing. Yeah. Like, this is one of those things that, like, I don't think you can have a Natasha turn just because, like, <laughs> just the way it flows or whatever. Yeah. It's just, you're going to miss something. Uh-huh. And that's a bummer because there are times where, like, I've played it and I don't think I've missed anything. But in my head, I'm like, I'm pretty sh- I feel like I should be a little bit higher on red. I do like you can go back and look at everything you've done and count them all up. Even if they're not getting cards and stuff? Yeah, because everything, every time you take a piece off your board, you get a banner. You know, you'll be able to count all those banners on your board or count the cards. So you can go through and count unless you take an action, a worker placement action in the king's favor area. Yeah. You know, that might move you up a track that you can't count. Which would be difficult to keep track of, but you should be, for the most part, relatively close Mm -hmm. with all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's only a problem like your first like two or three games, I think. Just then you kind of get better at that. But it's definitely easy to teach, hard to play. Yes, it's hard to, yeah, easy to learn, hard to master. Yeah, not even just the strategy, but just the rules. Yes. Okay, Viscounts. Hard hard to learn. Every time we've been at games where somebody is learning it, it feels punishing to them. Like every new player is like, ugh, ugh. Whether that's new players, casual gamers, or hardcore gamers that are used to this style of game. Teaching this game sucks. And part of it is the way the player board is set up. So 
in architects you have a player board and for the most part when you're if you're playing on the advanced side you're you're going to have different starting stuff but for the most part the only thing on it is you know end game scoring okay mm-hmm. in paladins for the most part everything you're going to have like if you might uncover stuff and get things so you can quick just kind of like move your little house off there or your your garrison and look okay I'm going to get this mm-hmm. or whatever right in viscounts I don't know why they changed it but you have a set of buildings okay you have three different kinds of buildings The only difference is the amount it costs to build them and where they're located. Mm -hmm. And when you build certain ones, you can either unlock icons or you can increase the amount of movement for your Viscount. But the cost to build those buildings are on the upper side of those buildings. So the buildings. So the buildings block (laughs) what the cost is to build them. Yeah. Like if you're standing directly above it, you can see it. But if you're sitting down at a table like we all are, you can't see that. Yeah, you're just like, how much is it? And then you're, you you kind of like lean over the table. And it's not that big of a deal, but it's like, why did you make that choice? Considering how clean all the other versions are, like this one you're going to do that with? Like, <laughs> it's funky, yeah. It just, man, that little thing. And then the way they have it structured is, so they say like, okay, your turn structure is right on top of your player board. There's not enough of a difference between all the different things in order for players to be able intuitively look at it and say, okay, this is how I separate mm-hmm. my turn structure. Yeah. Okay. To segue a little bit into iconography, all three games have very similar iconography. Which I love. It keeps things consistent and it allows players who have played previous games to kind of understand what's going forward. Mm-hmm. Like they introduce new stuff in each game, like Paladins has a couple new things and so does Viscounts. But they all have the same victory point icon, so you know that that's a victory point yep. really easily. Or flipping a card, flipping a deed or a debt. They're mm-hmm. all the same kind of iconography. The way the cards are structured, where you get an instant benefit, a bottom action, all of that. There's a top action on, on um, Paladins and Viscounts that allows you to do a different type of ability. and That's all the same. Yeah, for the most part. Viscounts adds a couple things. Mm-hmm. that just doesn't seem as intuitive as some of the other icons in some ways. And the the very first time I taught this game to you guys, you guys asked me questions, well, what does this do? I'm like, that's a good question. I don't know. And they're like, for any icons, look on the back. So I'll look on the back and it's not on there. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I mean, this is a big thing because it involved the collision track. Like, why isn't that on there? Yeah. What, like, what's going on? So then I'm flipping through the book and then I finally like read this little small little text about it. I'm like, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. Yeah. It's definitely tricky to teach and tricky to to learn the Viscounts is. It very much is. And I think that's the kind of game that if you're going to play, you need to invest several plays into to get the full effect out of it. Yeah. Yeah. However, I do think it's worth the investment. I did really enjoy the game. And each time I play it, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to do things differently. I think I can... I think I can get better at this game. The problem I'm going to have with this game is I agree. I liked it too. I love rondels. I love constantly moving around a board. It has some good decisions about, okay, if I play this card, I can move two. Mm-hmm. And I need to move two in order to get to this action spot so I can take this action because I'm I'm all prepped for it. Mm-hmm. But if I play this card, I can move three and it gives me an extra two trade icons and I already have seven trade icons and i could get a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. the decisions are really really interesting yeah Yeah. but the problem is who's going to play it with you because kind of everyone's turned off the first time they play it and you don't want to always play with new players because it's so hard to teach that's the problem is i don't know if i'm going to bust it out because i don't want to teach it to people it just having played the game a couple times it really helps the teaching process Mm -hmm. i feel like i can be better at it but one of the things that as far as teaching that i don't like to do is i don't like to keep tabs on the players i want them to make their decisions for themselves and viscounts is one of those games that i'm constantly making sure the turn is progressed in the correct way because it matters yeah and it's not easy to tell like there's no player aid that tells you what you're going to do you're supposed to follow the board along on your board it kind of shows you but it's not clear it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you look at it they're just too yeah they're just too compact together they're not separated enough to like really get a good flow between all the different phases yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's hard to teach i i don't know if i play well at two but i play it with you because i really enjoyed it i think this game would play well at two player count let's talk player count okay for these games architects at two player awful i don't like it why is that there's no tension that game is all about the tension of when do i grab your workers from spots and with two players i'm either doing it or you're doing it mm-hmm. you know if 
I'm playing with a new person and they don't know that they need to make sure I don't get a bunch of gold. Like I can just keep going there. There's yeah, a- and you want to pick up work. You kind of want to pick up workers that aren't yours. It's nice to pick up your own workers because you get them back super easy. Yeah. But you really want to pick up other people's because you can get paid for it. Yeah, the tension that you have amongst the players and that whole empowering players to determine when workers get pulled back and all that other, it just doesn't feel like it's quite there. Paladins played well at two. My only complaint with two is that the cards aren't going to be flushing it, coming out yep. as much. You know, you don't get as many choices with the, the worker cards that come out and then not as many people are buying to the other cards so they're not kind of flushing out throughout the game. Yeah, it feels slightly more restrictive, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it plays well at two. Yeah, there's less spots you can go to, so it does not like you have so many more choices. I, I would play that one at two. I think if I had two, I would have no problem playing it. I will say with Architects, there is a version where you can ha- have like a third bot player, which I'm I'm not about that life. Hashtag not about that life. Like it... <laughs> <laughs> it's just more work. Yeah. Well, they did it in Seven Wonders. Like the two-player version is you had a dummy. Yeah, Dune Imperium does it as well. That's right. Uh, I'm not. I don't know. I you don't... have so many good games. If you had, if you're playing two players, just play a different game. Well, and if I'm if I'm controlling a bot, I'm probably playing solo. I don't want to have to like control a bot player myself and then worry about another player playing. Mm-hmm. Like I just don't want to do that. There's just so many good two-player games. Yeah, I'll just pick something else. Which is unfortunate because I like Architects. I like that push and pull. It has a real cool like interaction with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, two, uh-uh, not going to do it. Viscounts, I think, will be just fine at two. The only big difference is going to be the castle mm-hmm. where that's going to be the struggle is knocking players off. Mm-hmm. But even the last couple of times we played, you know, there's only been like one or two people that have focused on the castle anyway. Mm-hmm. My last game, I didn't really, I did a little bit in the castle, but I was, my goal was to see how many deeds I could get and how many I could flip. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Even then, I don't think that's going to be an issue. You know, most of the time you're not really interacting with players. If you are, if your Viscount lands on a space with another Viscount, that Viscount's player can shuffle your board. Which is kind of cool because you can move your things around. Yep. And you don't have to push them off if you don't want to yet. Yeah, I would play Viscount at two. I think it would be fine. I think I would enjoy it because I don't like getting kicked off the castle, so you have a less chance of that happening. Well, and sometimes you want to kick yourself off the castle so you no, can get- No, never. Because oh I want you get God. points. You get points for being on the castle. Yeah, but what if you need a couple bucks? What if you need a couple coins? Why? So I can buy more gold to put more people in the castle? Yeah, maybe. No. I'm, oh, my God. No, well, don't kick me out. I don't like it. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I only kicked you off once the last game we played. And it was off of the one tier, so you only lost one point. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. It could have been more points if I would have gotten that one up. I had a plan of moving them. No, no, no I don't you like didn't. It. I don't that like was it. The, that was the compl- last round. That was my only complaint. Yeah. I don't like getting kicked off the castle. Well, whatever. Um, Artwork. It's the same artwork throughout all three yes. games. If you haven't seen them, if you've seen the boxes, you'll be able to tell right away. I love that. There are characters in all three games that all come out and they all kind of do the same thing. They're the same pit person there with a special ability that has to do with, you know, being pious. It's really cool. I love, I love seeing the same artwork in all three of these games. It has a consistent feel amongst all the games. And I think Paladins, if I remember correctly, the Outsiders are actually pictures from the other games. Like there's the North Sea Saga mm-hmm. where those three games, I think some of the Outsiders are from there. And then he's developing that next uh series and i think there's even some characters from that in the outsiders deck i think yeah i love seeing the same characters again i love the artwork i think it's gorgeous so to see it over and over again i i don't know i just like that they're all set in the same world with the same characters i love the that all the iconography is the same there's a lot of things that are only in one game and not all three yep but there are things that are in all three that are they're just really good and it makes it, I don't know, it just makes it all cohesive. But they're all different. It doesn't feel like three of the same games. It doesn't feel like three versions of Azul. It feels right. like three totally separate games that each have their place in your shell, but just happen to have the same theme and artwork. Yeah, it, it being the West Kingdom trilogy, I think that some people are going to be like, well, I have architects, I don't need paladins or I don't need viscounts. And they all feel so different. Mm-hmm. Specifically, to segue into... Game end triggers. So architects and viscounts are both going to be an undetermined amount of time. You're constantly taking turns until some sort of objective is reached. In architects, you're placing uh, workers in the the build area. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it gets filled up, it triggers end of the game. Viscounts, same thing. Like you're pulling debts and deeds. 
as soon as you get through a certain amount of cards for each one, that triggers the end of the game. Paladins being the only one that is completely set in the number of rounds. Mm-hmm. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the... I think I prefer set number of rounds so I can plan accordingly. You know, if I want to do the long... I want I might want to do the long game in by counts, but I can't because other players are pushing along. But I do enjoy pushing along the end game as well. I enjoy games that do that because I like to push games to complete quickly, yep. you know, and kind of try to end it before somebody becomes too powerful. Um, So I like both. I like both too, specifically in Architects, because again, it kind of goes with the whole like everyone's in charge of determining game length. They're in charge of determining when workers are getting placed out. Yeah. And in Architects, you put a worker out in the build worker area to either build a building or the part of the cathedral. And that's how you get most of your points. So if you don't go there and try to progress the game along, somebody else is going to do that. And they're going to get all these buildings. They're going to win the game because they have so many more points because the majority of your points come from the cathedral and your buildings. And I think because it's on the main player board and you can see how many workers are there, it Mm -hmm. gives a much better idea of the flow of the game. Conversely, Viscounts, you don't have that because you just have a stack of cards. Mm -hmm. And every time we've played it, something's like, oh, the game's ending? Yeah. I thought I had another chance to build it up. Yeah. Which is interesting because I don't think that game is short by any means. Mm-mm. It's a it's a longer game, but every time somebody's like, oh, I thought I had more time. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because it's not as easy to see how many cards are left. Mm-hmm. There's There was a couple times where I grabbed him. I'm like, hey, just so you guys know, we have six more deeds and two people are about to like collide and gain three deeds apiece. So we're yeah, about to end the game. You, you can go from having a half a half a deck to being gone in one round too. Yeah. It, it can progress pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where in Architects, you kind of can see it coming a lot quicker. Yep. And then obviously in Paladins, it's just a set number of rounds. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Overall, let's start with Architects. How do you rate this game? I'm giving Architects 8 out of 10. I completely agree. As long as it's the right player count. As long as it's over. If you told me to play it at 2, it would not be an Mm 8. That's Mm -hmm. caveat, not two-player. Yeah. I love worker placement games. This one feels a little different than all the rest of them, but it's easy to teach. We taught my husband. He got right into it, won the game. It was awesome. He doesn't yep. play games, let alone Euro games at all. I think if I have four players, I have no hesitation busting this out and playing it. I think it would be a fun game mm-hmm. and it can move quick. Yeah, I like it. I think you could play it with somebody who doesn't typically play a lot of games, but still, I still enjoy it. It's got a lot of depth and strategy to yep. it. All right. Paladins. I think Paladins is my favorite. Okay. I-, I would give it a nine out of 10. Okay. I love it. I love how each game has been different. Mm-hmm. Um, I love building things up and making it better. And I love the tracks, the strength, the influence and faith, how those go out, up throughout the game. I don't know what it is. I love choosing the paladins and being able to plan my my workers out. I love it. I will give the game a 9.5 out of 10. I've said this after the last couple plays. I think this game could be a top 10 game for me. Yeah. I need to play it more. And I really just, I want to explore the game a lot more. It could go to a 10, but I mean, I love this game. It's so good. The decisions that you make are so meaningful, but they're not as difficult as like you would think with the game. Mm -hmm. It has just enough forward planning that feels good and it doesn't make you feel idiotic if you mess it up. You can always still do something. Mm -hmm. I love it. 9.5 for sure. Even how fiddly the remembering all the rules are. I mean, I, that's my least favorite thing about games is they have to remember certain rules. I still love this game. That's how good it is. Yeah, despite you're always thinking that you're not high enough on those on mm-hmm. those tracks. Or you end up doing an action that you weren't high enough to do, but you did it anyways and messed it yeah, up. Yeah, you forgot to pay a provision. I don't know how many times we... And the thing is, I think because all players experience that, they all had the same like, oh, well, do you have it? Do you have the one provision? Yeah, we'll just spend it. Yeah. You know, like uh, this last time I was taking an action that allowed me to discard those corruption cards. And at one point I said, I was like, oh, shoot, I was supposed to discard three of them. And you were like, just do it. You know, yeah. Like just because it's. it's you got to be forgiving. But I think with over time, it's gotten a lot better. I, I remember it the third, fourth time I play it. I was a lot better at remembering all the rules to going to each spot. It just was worth it. It's such a good game. I, I really love it. Agreed. All right. Bye counts. Yes. Okay, I feel like most of the review we've been poo-pooing Viscounts, and like I, I still really like. I do it. too. I'm I'm giving Viscounts an eight, mm-hmm. and it might go higher if it wasn't a terrible teach. Yes. Honestly, it just it's fiddly, but in a way I like. 
which is weird. Yeah, I maybe it's because I like rondelles. My favorite game of all time has a rondelle in it. I love the, I love the, uh, it's a deck builder in it, kind of, but like in good deck building fashion, you want to discard those cards and cut them out of your deck and have a really slim deck. I don't know. I just love that part of it. I think I'd give it an eight and a half, but only that low because of how difficult it was to teach and how much like new players don't like it. I'm about to make another comment about something terrible in this game. And that's the, when you, you can trash cards. It's hard, but you can get rid of cards. Mm -hmm. It's either in your hand or blindly from the top of your deck. Yeah, it's really hard to trash cards you don't want to. Like not from your discard pile. Why can't I trash a card from my discard pile? Uh You can plan for that. But you usually have three turns ahead to plan it. So you got to keep that crappy card in your hand so you can. But it just clogs it up. I don't. It just. It's fun. There's just a lot of strategy with how you play those cards. It's so. There's so much in-depth strategy, and it, these games all make me want to play them again and again, and they're beautiful to look at. Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like we've been really negative on buy counts. The thing is, I still like the game. Mm-hmm. It's still one of those games that the decision space is so good because you're playing a card, but that card does so many things. It tells you how far your buy count's going to travel. It also gives you icons so you can take actions And it's also, it could have a triggered ability or it could have one of those abilities that when it slides off. So now you got to plan, okay, in two more turns, I get to flip a deed. I don't have any, so I need to make sure I acquire something in order to take advantage of this card because I want to move two spaces and then use the trade icons on this to trade. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's so good, but... So much planning. I think this game, the more we play it, I think it'll keep going up. That's my prediction. So what's your hierarchy of games? Architects, Viscounts, and Paladins. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Architects and uh, Viscounts, I've rated the same, but I think Viscounts just squeaks by Architects in that one. If I went it's by, it's just so interesting. If I went by quarters, it'd probably be eight point two five or uh-huh. something, you know. But yeah. yeah, the the way that they do worker placement is so interesting. You know, overall, I'm like, oh, it's just worker placement, gather resources, build buildings, blah. but you get to do all this like interesting thing, like stealing, you know, grabbing up other players' workers, sending them to prison. Yeah. It just makes it different. Yeah, really good trilogy. I'm really looking forward to the next set of stuff he's coming out with. He has this unique way of taking worker placement and kind of just like nudging it in different directions, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah. If there was like a set of games that you can say, Natasha, what kind of games do you like? I would say the West Kingdom games are my games. I love that uh, mid to heavyweight Euros. Yep. It's gorgeous. I just love all of them. I love all the mechanics in it. It's just my style game. Agreed. I think that's going to wrap up our discussion on the West Kingdom trilogy. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to be discussing artwork and games. All right, welcome back. Next up, let's talk about artwork. Bob, how important is artwork to you in a game? I think it's pretty important now. I don't know if it was necessarily the case. You know, five years ago, even. Yeah. But now, yes, artwork is very important. I think artwork has always been important and publishers just didn't realize it until Kickstarter came around. And now Kickstarter games sell if the artwork is beautiful. People are interested in that. Yeah, I agree. I think there are certain companies that always kind of focused on having good quality artwork, mm-hmm. but it was never it wasn't necessarily as much of a focus previously like days of wonders always had really good artwork i feel Mm -hmm. like but you didn't need good artwork to sell a game 10 15 years ago yeah you know we're now now they realize artwork sells and i think that's really what's helping board games be part of the mass market is the beautiful artwork like wingspan a lot of times you can use artwork to help progress a theme or even help in the process of teaching if you have good artwork that helps thematically with a game because if you can tie thematics into game mechanics you you can much more successful teaching yeah and really clear iconography that's consistent throughout the game yeah it's funny with the specifically with artwork take a game um carpe diem came out a few years ago and a few years ago it looks sold it came out in 2018 it is a Steffenfeld game and it was published by alea and people went nuts about how terrible the artwork was. Oh, yeah, it's ugly. You know, and the thing is, so they released, so they had, okay, the other thing with Carpe Diem is so they had this original release and the artwork was just, it's like they didn't even care, right? Yeah, I remember, I can picture the cover, it's like gray. 
Yeah, and it was like some, yeah, whatever, some person holding a, yeah, whatever. So then they released a, a second edition, which they kind of changed this one little mechanic around. So instead of going like across a thing, you just went side to side. And then they continued to get so much backlash on the artwork, they actually released another version just to improve the artwork. Good. I don't know how much it actually did. I can't imagine it sold because the people who liked the game probably already owned it. Well, and that just goes back to our previous point. Artwork is is so much more important now than it was back then. Like dry euros looked like dry euros. Mm -hmm. And now you can get a dry euro game that looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. Take Coimbra is a prime example. Like that game looks incredible with the artwork, but at the end of the day, it's a euro through and through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It it takes it from a dry euro, which if it didn't have beautiful artwork, it would have been a dry euro to a beautiful, gorgeous game. Yeah. Well, and oftentimes, I know specifically for you, you mention a lot of artwork within your games on how whether or not you like it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of importance to having that good quality artwork. I think it can sway decisions one way or another to either keep a game, get rid of a game, buy a game, not buy a game. I think you know? it, it affects enjoying playing the game. When the pieces are beautiful to look at, the cards are nice, the artwork is nice. To me, it, artwork is probably one of the most important things. I don't care about theme as much as I care about artwork. I enjoy playing a game that has beautiful pictures. Okay. What is your hierarchy of need when it comes to a board game? So, for example, game mechanics. Is game mechanics first, artwork second, theme fourth or fifth? Yeah, I would say so. Something along those lines. Okay. Mechanics, artwork, uh, components would be in there. Well, and that's the other thing with components. There, A lot of times they can be tied in with artwork with how good if a game has both good components and good artwork. Mm-hmm. And Kickstarter really has has really upped the game as far as like component quality. Yeah, they've had to. I mean, people aren't going to back an ugly game. No. Well, and you only have one opportunity because I know I know you don't do Kickstarter. Mm-mm. But like I filter through Kickstarter and I'll be looking at games and there are times where I'll see a game that is funded and a bunch of backers and I'll see the regular page, just the little icon, the little blip that they have for me to click on. And I'm like, I what am I missing? Like, this does not look good. Yeah. You know, so it it determines whether or not I'm going to click on on the page to even look further into what the game does. I think taking a really simple game, like an abstract game, and throwing on some beautiful artwork makes the game like Azul, right? Azul is abstract, no theme, but the colors are beautiful. It makes it really fun to play. Santorini is another prime example. Mm Mm-hmm. The artwork in that game is kind of like chibi-esque, kind of. You know, it's a very good artwork for a game that at the end of the day is abstract. And you could play with blocks. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it fun. Do you think at this point it's unacceptable to have crappy artwork? Do you think it's just industry standard unacceptable? No. I mean, look at Castles of Burgundy. People love that. And that artwork is... Funny story. They released that new anniversary edition Mm -hmm. with quote unquote better artwork. I hate it. I just don't like it. Really? I just don't like how it looks. That's the thing. There's something iconic about that old school artwork that I just I like, which is completely against what we're talking about right now. You know, Uh that that old crappy Euro artwork, but there's some about it that I like. Uh-huh. You know, take a game like Lords of Waterdeep, for example. Some of that old school D&D artwork isn't necessarily the greatest artwork in the world, but there's just something about that it. That game is beautiful. You know? mm-hmm. I, I don't think a game will sell and ever hit, hit the mass market without beautiful artwork, a hobby style game. But I definitely think people will still play ugly games. I mean, they do. There's still a lot of dry euros and they still get played because the games are that good. But I think the games could be amazing if they had beautiful artwork. We often talk about publishers and designers. I think conversations need to start happening more about the artists that are involved. Segue into some of the artists we like. For example, one of the artists that just always draws me to their artwork is Ryan Lockett of Red Raven Games. Oh, yeah. His artwork is so unique. It has a certain flair. He's built these worlds with his artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to have his own game company and control every aspect of it helps with creating continuity amongst all his games. Yep. But there's just something about his artwork that just catches my eye every single time I look at it. Oh, yeah. I love looking at it all set up. I love sitting down and playing with it and touching all the pieces and looking at all the parts and the art and everything. 
And the same, it's similar to the West Kingdom games. Once you learn one system, even though the games are so different, they're easy to learn the next one because he reuses a lot of the iconography and mechanics. And I love that. So the West Kingdom series is the, I'm going to, I can't even try to pronounce this guy's name because I'm going to butcher it, but he goes by the Miko. And I think the biggest thing between him and Ryan is their artwork is extremely distinct. Yeah. You can look at a game and say, all right, I know the artist of this game. Just the way they create these things and just the uniqueness of their artwork, I think, is just becomes more attractive to people Yep. because it's not like what you normally see. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing them kind of repeat the same artwork over and over. It's just more familiar. You know, it doesn't need to reinvent the wheel. It doesn't need to be complicated. I think what it does is it creates a universe that you're familiar a, with. Yeah. yeah. You're a part of. Yeah. As you play his game, they won't necessarily say, all right, this is from, well, Ryan's starting to do it with some of his Red Raven games, you know, with like Near and Far, Now or Never, that kind of stuff. They all tend to be in the same universe, but there's a consistency in the artwork that makes it feel like you're playing in the same universe. So you could be doing something and you're gonna be like, I've seen this character before. It's real similar to this character in here. And it's, you know, presents this consistent package game to game. Another artist I like is Beth Sorbel. So she did Cascadia and Cascadia is pretty simple the artwork isn't overly complex or anything but it's still like the cards are beautiful the pieces are each uh very easy to tell what they are she did also did calico and arboretum and endangered all beautiful games that are really popular her style of artwork i think is very appealing to a lot of different people it's Mm -hmm. very very welcoming and friendly Yeah. yeah yeah exactly uh one person i want to bring up is jacob rosalski who I probably butchered the name, but he did all the artwork for Scythe. Yeah. I love that artwork. He, it's so good. I think if I had to do a top 10 of like artwork, I think Scythe would be number one. Really? I don't know what it is about specifically that, like just the, his style and the way it looks and just all of it put together. It's amazing. That is, yes, I love that artwork. Yeah, it's got a uni- really unique style of old fashioned, but with the mechs in there, the technology. I don't know. It's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, this altern- alternative universe, dystopian kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, steampunk kind of. Kind of, yeah. It just, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's unique. You can't put your finger on it. It's really good. Yeah, it's I, I love it. Yeah, that artwork is amazing. Yeah, I think some of my other favorite artists would be like Andrew Bosley and Dan May. They did the artwork for Everdell. Mm-hmm. And look how well that game is doing. Kind of like uh, Wingspan with Natalia Roja. She did Wingspan. And both of those games are really popular. I think you can't mention artwork without men- mentioning Vincent Dutrait. Yes. Man, he's probably my number two favorite artist of yep. all time. He's contributed to Role Player. He's done Atlantis Rising, Jaipur, Robinson Crusoe. He's at museum. He's done so many cool games and just his style is, again, it's very distinct. I think that's what separates certain artists from other ones is just their distinctness that you can just point it out. I know when I look at a game, like who made it? Mm -hmm. This is a Vincent Dutrait for sure. Yeah, I love his as well. What I don't like is dry Euro artwork. And I've seen this face uh, like the guy on Grand Austria Hotel. I just can't stand that artwork in that game. It's such a good game. But the artwork is just looks so boring. I don't know. I kind of like it. I don't mind it. I don't think it's that bad. You know what I don't like is I feel bad for saying artist names that I don't like, but it's not my style. Let's put it that way. Sam Phillips, who's done Cadrian's Wall and Raiders uh, Scythia. Yeah, they look very similar. <sighs> Man, I don't, how can I put into words why I don't? I just, it looks like computer generated almost. It's got a lot of browns and blacks in it. Brown, black, and red. I don't know. I don't, I don't care for it either. I know I've heard that the Raiders of Cynthia is similar to the Raiders of the North Sea. Yes. But with all the expansions in, you get a better game. Yep. But I kind of don't want to play it because I just love the North Sea artwork so much better. That's what, you know, the whole point, right? Artwork sways decisions. I think publishers nowadays, if they're overlooking artwork, uh, you can't. You Mm -hmm. just can't overlook artwork at this point. It's just so important to the game structure. Take a game like Mysterium. The artwork in Mysterium is amazing. There's, you know, four contributors to it. And just the amount of stuff that you have, that abstracty and just something about that draws you to it. Same mm-hmm. thing with something like Dixit. I don't I don't like Dixit's artwork as much as like Mysterium. Mysterium tends to draw me in more than let's oh, say Dixit. I love Dixit, yeah. But again, that artwork and those abstract pieces and everything. It, artwork can take a game 
that's decent. Like Meadow. And people <sighs> love it because of the artwork. I do, well, to be fair, I like I like Meadow too. I just don't like that weasel on the front, which we determined is a weasel. We've that's been why lo- it looks like a funny looking fox because it's not a fox. Whatever. I just it just for whatever reason that cover they could have done better on that cover. But the card the, the artwork within the game was gorgeous. I agree. And it's yeah. not a good game and people love it. I <laughs> do you think it's the artwork that does I, it? I hundred percent think it's the artwork. Maybe. I mean, can artwork elevate a game? I mean, how yeah. much time do you spend standing at a game in between your turns? And to look at lovely pictures? I mean, sure, why not? You get something out of it. You know what? Don't look at lovely pictures. Why don't you just like focus on what you're going to do on your turn, right? That's what you should be telling people. I just stare at them when it's their turn. Like, are you done yet? Oh, I know. You, Yeah. You gotta, <laughs> come on. Come on. Come on. I got... It's your, do- did you know it's your turn? You didn't know it's your turn? One of our game group friends, Marty, he always talks about inventing this little light. So every time you're done with your turn, your light turns on or whatever. So you know you're done. You don't have to tell people. Because how often are you taking turns and all of a sudden somebody's like, whose turn is it? It's yours, man. (laughs) (laughs) It is? Yes, it is. All right. Keep making beautiful games. We love looking at beautiful artwork. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening to Our Shenanigans. Join us next week where we're going to talk about scoring. Please leave us a review and check us out on Instagram or Facebook. Send us your questions to boardgameshenanigans at gmail.com. Have a great week. See you next week.